Today's scripture comes from uh, the book of Proverbs, and if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, we're going through a series in the book of Proverbs, and uh, basically one of the things that we're doing uh, for a couple of weeks is we're covering what has traditionally been known as the seven deadly sins, uh, and we're calling it the seven ways of folly. Um, and today we are going to look at the topic of greed. So if you look in the bulletin, uh, the scripture is printed out. You can follow along as I read it aloud. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know the poverty that poverty will come upon him. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. This is the word of the Lord. Just by way of a reminder, the reason we're going through the book of Proverbs is because we need wisdom to navigate life. And what that means is we need more than simply just information. We need more than simply just how-to manuals, but we uh, need wisdom, which is something that is uh, a part of who we are, which means a part of who we are needs to be transformed and changed in order to gain wisdom. And, you know, we, we're looking at the life of folly, which is uh, basically a way of saying, if you walk your life or the path of your life with these things in your life, then according to the book of Proverbs, uh, you're a foolish person. It is a life of folly. So we looked at things like pride, anger, laziness, and today we're going to look at the topic of greed. Now, about 10 years ago, uh, I remember I read this essay in Time magazine, and it was quoting Pope Benedict, who is uh, not the current pope, but the, the previous pope. But it was quoting Pope Benedict as uh, saying, uh, we are losing our notion of sin. And he would say, our cultures, uh, we tend to celebrate things that have traditionally been sanctioned. So for example, pride is now something that is essential to our self-esteem. Lust is something that is used as an advertising strategy. Anger is basically the righteous tool of anybody who has any kind of grievance. And even though he said these things uh, 10 years ago, I think a lot of what he says is still relevant for today. And I think perhaps greed falls into that category. Now, greed has a slightly more complicated story, and uh, I'm going to try to uh, explain why I think it's a little bit complicated. But I think there are people, especially in New York City of all places, who would probably say greed is useful. Greed is something that is good. When I was in high school, I think I've shared this story before, but um, <coughs> my history teacher, uh, she showed us a clip from the movie Wall Street, and that was my first, I guess, contact with this movie. It's an older movie, but uh, this movie is famous for a character named Gordon Gekko, and uh, Gordon Gekko is a character who's an investor, and he, he's kind of a shady character, and uh, he's a little bit shady with his investments, and what eventually happens to him is he gets caught with uh, insider trading, and he ends up going to jail. But in this movie, there's this famous scene where he's addressing the stockholders, and he gives this uh, eloquent speech, and he basically says this, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right, greed works, greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. 
And where he's coming from is basically saying this, you know, the motivation that people have for money, especially in a capitalistic system, that motivation causes us to, uh, to evolve, to innovate, to do things that are better. And when the sequel, there's a sequel to this movie, Wall Street, when the sequel came out a couple years ago, I was listening to NPR on the radio, and they were interviewing different people who were involved with the, the original movie. And uh, they, there was an interview with the director, Oliver Stone, and what was so fascinating about this interview is, as he was reflecting upon the release of that movie, Wall Street, he was surprised by the reaction people had to this Gordon Gecko character. Because this character was supposed to be the villain of the movie. This character was supposed to represent corruption and dishonesty and greed. But what ended up happening in society is uh, the general audience or some, some segment of the audience looked at him as kind of like a hero figure. That he was somebody to model, that he was somebody that they wanted to be. And so they started to dress like him and they wanted to talk like him and they slicked their hair back like him. <laughs> and they wanted to imitate his style. People wanted to be this Gordon Gecko character and they wanted the wealth that he had, and they wanted to live the life that he lived. And I think what's interesting is that uh, despite the obvious flaws in this character, uh, at least to certain people, it did not seem that he was all that bad. And therefore, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, the people that are around us today, especially in New York, if people here uh, didn't really look at greed as something all that dangerous and all that destructive and all that bad, uh, because we see pragmatically greed can really motivate us to uh, do better work. But as I said before, I think the story of greed is a little bit more complicated than that because we went through a sobering financial crisis uh, a couple years ago, and uh, that exposed a lot of problems with greed. Uh, the banks, the regulators, the, the people taking out mortgages that they couldn't afford to pay caused a lot of damage in the wider economy. And it wasn't too long ago, so I think a lot of you still probably remember what that was like. And I just want to remind you of the feeling uh, of what that was like. You know, I remember tons of people were being laid off. I remember talking to this one person who actually wasn't laid off, and yet uh, he would go to work every day, and the floor that he worked on, all the cubicles used to be full, but now half of it was empty, and there was just this empty, eerie feeling just going to work every day because half of the people that you used to work with weren't there. You know, people went through uh, periods of uh, very low times and a lot of depression. And, you know, people who were looking for jobs coming out of school couldn't find jobs. And they, too, went through very uh, difficult and dark times. And I think due to that experience, uh, maybe, uh, maybe it was a little bit corrective. Maybe it wasn't debatable. But I think uh, some people at least saw that greed is not a good thing. And greed can be something that can be very dangerous. Uh, greed is complicated and I was just thinking about this as I was sitting there. Think about the Robin Hood story as well. The Robin Hood story is a, is a guy who represents those who are poor and steals from the rich. And uh, I think the implication of the story is like Robin Hood is kind of this hero figure, but it's a little bit complicated because he's stealing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is it okay to do that? Um, I, I don't think anybody would feel bad if uh, those who were greedy and those who were uh, wealthy were punished or lost a little bit, uh, at least for the sake of the poor. And so, you know, we, there's all these things that, uh, all these situations that make greed a little bit hard to think about, to pinpoint, uh, to uh, address. But I think the tricky thing about greed is also this. It's, it's not always clear when you're being greedy, when you have a problem with greed. Uh, I've had people over 
period of time ask me things like this. You know, why, why do Christians care so much about sex? Why are they so vocal and why do they speak with so much conviction about sex when obviously there's a problem with greed in the world? Why aren't Christians talking about greed all the time? And uh, I, I think there's truth to that, but I think maybe part of the reason why is uh, it's much easier to identify whether one person is deviating from uh, God's design regarding sex because if you sleep with somebody you're not supposed to sleep with, then it's pretty clear that that is something that is not right. But I think with greed, it's not, it's not always apparent. Uh, if you don't pay for somebody else's meal when you have dinner with them, does that mean you're greedy? Not necessarily. If you don't give money to every person who asks you for money, um, does that mean you're greedy? Not necessarily. If you have a large amount of savings in your bank account or if you have all of these assets or investments, does that mean you're greedy? <clears throat> no, not necessarily. And, and I guess here's the tricky thing. If you have nice stuff, if you live a life of luxury, if you have a nice apartment, <clears throat> if you buy nice clothes, does that mean you're greedy? No, not necessarily. But here's what's tricky. It could also, yes, mean that you are greedy if you're doing these things. It's hard to know. It's hard to tell. Because greed is not about circumstantial things. Greed is not about how much money we have. Greed is a, ultimately a heart issue. So it could mean that you're being greedy, but it could also not mean you're being greedy. And I think it's hard to discern that sometimes because there is no clear rule or clear line to, to discern whether we have a problem with greed. Uh, here's the other tricky thing, ab I think, about greed. Most of us uh, don't really seek accountability for greed because finances are a very personal thing. Finances are a very personal area. We tend to be very private with our finances. We don't like to talk about it with other people. I imagine most of us, if not all of us, would be uh, uncomfortable sharing our financial data with another person. And therefore, outside of your own personal perspective or the perspective of your spouse, uh, who can really tell you whether your spending habits reflect uh, a life of generosity or a life of greed? You know, there's plenty of people uh, in the church and in the world who seek accountability for a variety of things, whether it's accountability for some kind of addiction or accountability for pornography or accountability for some kind of conflict. But who really seeks accountability with respect to how we use our money? Right? Most of us don't have it. I don't have it. So therefore, greed... Not always easy to see, and also not something that we usually have any kind of accountability for. Uh, institutions, of course, have accountability, but not necessarily us personally. And yet what the Proverbs is saying, and actually what Jesus talks about frequently in terms of material possessions, if you live a life of greed, then you are going to walk a path of folly. If you live a life of greed, and if you hold too hard on to your wealth and your possessions, it's not going to be good for you, and it's going to lead to greater destruction. So we need some wisdom, I think, in this area, and I think the Proverbs helps us a little bit. So as we look at the Proverbs that were uh, listed today in the, in the passage, uh, I think the first thing we can say is, what, what are some signs that we might have a problem with greed? And we'll start with the most obvious sign. And the most obvious sign would be this. If uh, your desire for wealth and your desire for money leads you to do something unethical, things like cheat, things like bribe, things like steal, then you have a problem with greed. Proverbs 11.1 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 15.27 says, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. Both of these proverbs are referring to unethical practices regarding your money. 
Now you might be familiar with, uh, I guess, the illustration that's used here in terms of how one might do business using weights. So if you're going to buy a pound of meat, then you have a counterbalance, and that's how you determine the accurate price of the meat in the ancient world, and I guess in, even in some places here today. But if you have a false balance, if the weight is not what you claim it to be, then you cheat the other person. It's not good business practice. You overcharge under a false pretense. And if that is you, then that means you have a problem with greed. Now, of course, most of us probably don't use that kind of system today, but I think there are equivalents to doing things like that. Um, you know, there's a, a movie, uh, sorry I'm referencing all these uh, finance movies, but there's a movie that came out a couple years ago called Margin Call. I don't, know, I don't think it's super popular, but uh, you can stream it. It's, it has uh, different actors. I forget their names at the moment, but um, <coughs> this movie basi basically takes place at the beginning of the financial crisis, uh, I think in 2008. And there's this character who works in risk management uh, department. And he's, uh, he's, I guess, looking at certain equations and uh, things like that. And he discovers a problem. And the problem he discovers is this. Uh, all the assets that the firm has, all the portfolio uh, of the firm, uh, if, uh, I, I guess, based on a faulty model, if these assets were to drop below a certain value, then the losses would outweigh the value of the firm, and the firm would have to go bankrupt. And so he reports this to the executives. The executives meet, and they have to go, oh, no, this is a big problem. What do we do? And you know, ultimately, what they decide to do is they decide to do this. Uh, they decide to dump all of the toxic assets in kind of like a fire sale to all of their investors in one day uh, before the investors find out that these are all worthless investments. <laughs> and one of the characters, one of the executives uh, in charge of sales and investments, he's clearly uncomfortable with that idea because it's kind of messed up, right? All your investors, you're trying to sell something at a certain value when you know that in the end they're going to lose money because it's going to be worthless. And the CEO of the company doesn't seem all that bothered by this strategy at all. And he basically looks at, survive, at it as survival. We need to, to survive, and so this is what we have to do. Now, in the movie, you see them uh, as contrasting figures. Uh, one, I guess, has a, a sense of what's morally right, and one doesn't really have a sense of what's morally right. But by the end of the movie, essentially, they, they are the same person. And here's why. They meet, and they're talking. The CEO gives a speech about uh, the history of financial markets and how this stuff happens all the time and what we're doing, it's no big deal. Uh, this is just history repeating itself. And then at the end of the speech, the guy he's giving the speech to, the, the head of the investments department, he agrees and he says, okay, I'm going to do what you're, you, uh, you're asking me to do, but I'm not going to do it because of the speech. I'm not going to go along with it because of the things that you just said. But he says this, I'm going to do it because I need the money. <laughs> That's a very dramatic point in the movie, and you go, you know, he, he's just like everybody else. He just wants the money. And it's a really striking line because you think up until that point, this is a really decent person, and maybe he's going to fight back hard and, and do the right thing. And, uh, but at the end of the day, he's like, I'm going to do what you want because guess what? I need the money. Now, that's a good modern example of what that might look like to use a false balance for unjust gain. But I'm going to also guess that maybe that doesn't apply to most of us here. Uh, moreover, I know that greed is not only a problem with people who uh, work in the financial industry. Greed is not only a problem with people who are wealthy. 
Greed is a problem of those who are poor. Greed is a problem of those who are educators, who work in construction, who uh, work in all of these various fields. Because again, as I said, greed is not about our circumstances or our situation. Greed is a matter of the heart. So if that's the case, how else might greed show itself in our lives? Well, looking at the Proverbs again, it seems to uh, say, if we are a stingy people and if we are unable to give freely, that's probably a sign that we have a problem with greed. Look at Proverbs 11, 24 to 26, and it says this, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. I think what's interesting about these Proverbs is that it seems to be saying this, if you live life generously, you will be better off in life. If you withhold and hoard for yourself, you're actually going to suffer. You're going to suffer want. Wealth ultimately benefits those who can give it away, but wealth ultimately hurts those who are unable to give it away and hoard it. Now, how does that exactly work? You know, there's something very seductive about money. There's something very seductive about wealth. Uh, and it can so easily be our, our mistress or our master. And uh, I think the, the way we should approach the topic of greed is not assume that it is somebody else's problem, but uh, we should probably assume we, we do have that problem, and it's just a matter of locating how that problem is expressed in our own hearts. And, you know, there, there was this uh, piece uh, a, long, a couple years ago, I guess, in the New York Times, and uh, the, the title of this article was called For the Love of Money. And it's written by a hedge fund trader, and uh, he concluded one thing. He said, I think I'm addicted to wealth. I think I'm addicted to money. He talks about a time when he got really angry. And he got, the reason he got angry is because when he received his bonus, it was only $3.6 million. And he got angry. He's like, that's not enough. And he compared his desire for more money to that of an alcoholic who needs another drink. And I think the reason why this article was uh, so striking and at the time got a lot of attention is because we're not used to describing wealth as, as an addiction. Uh, it's, it's just kind of the norm, right? Everybody wants more money, right? And what's wrong with that? But he was able to identify that money was more than just a, uh, a product to be used or something to steward, but money was actually his master. And, you know, the more he made of it, the more he actually wanted. And the more he wanted, the more discontent he was with his life. And the more discontent he was, well, the more miserable he was. You see, that desire for more is what the Bible uh, calls covetousness. Uh, in Luke 12, Jesus says, guard your heart against all covetousness. Why? Because when you covet, when you want something that somebody else has and that you don't have, then you take on a posture of feeling hungry. And feeling hunger might be a good motivator for a period of time or for a season of time, but if you are hungry all the time, eventually it makes you feel miserable all the time. And moreover, I, th I think it disconnects you from reality. How else do you explain this 30-year-old man, single man, uh, thinking 3.6 million, come on, that's not enough. I need more. How else can you explain when we ourselves say things like, I have nothing to wear to this event, to this wedding, to work, and yet you open up your closets and, whew, filled with clothes. 
How else do we uh, explain why we say things like, ah, oh, there's nothing to eat. And uh, yet you walk out the door and there's like tons of restaurants. You open your fridge, there's like tons of food. I, there's something there that distorts, I think, the reality of life and the reality of our situation. And if you're never content in life, then, you know, your insatiable desires, it's going to feel like suffering. And I think that's why this Proverbs says you, you suffer want. If you can't live generously, you suffer want. Now, how do we know that money uh, hasn't seduced us to the point of being our master? Uh, I think it's if we can live life generously, if we're able to give it away freely, if we're able to bless others with it. Now, some of you know, some of you may know that, oh, I'm not a generous person, and uh, it's clear to you, but I, I think maybe a lot of us are not so sure. And the reason why we might not be so sure is this. Uh, I think some of us here uh, actually have no problem giving away money. Uh, I've been the recipient of a lot of your generosity, and uh, people have uh, bought me meals and, and things like that all the time. Uh, I, I don't think we have a huge problem giving gifts for special occasions or um, for people's birthdays. Uh, I don't think people here have a hard time donating to various charities. Uh, but here's the thing. I don't know if that necessarily means we're generous in the sense that the Bible talks about generosity because if you can afford to give and if you can afford to do these things and it doesn't really have a, a, any kind of impact on your life at all, then maybe you're just giving because you can afford it and it's not really coming from a place of generosity. So here are a few questions that maybe we can ask. Uh, can you give away your money to somebody that you don't really like or you don't think really deserves it. Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 12, sell your possessions and give to the needy. If you're a follower of Jesus, are you willing to do that? That sounds very costly, doesn't it? Or are you only willing to give away that which doesn't really cost you much? I think questions like this start to make us feel a little bit more uncomfortable with ourselves, right? Because if you're a believer, these are the kinds of questions that touch a kind of nerve because the kind of generosity that the Bible talks about is, is actually very radical. And you ask, well, does that kind of generosity exist anywhere? It sure does. Where do you look? Look to the cross, friends. What does the message of the gospel have to do with our wealth and poverty? You know, it says this according to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's Paul's summary of the gospel uh, with respect to uh, using, I guess, monetary categories. In other words, if you were to ask Jesus the very same questions that I just posed to you, do you know how he would answer? Jesus, are you able to give away your wealth to someone who doesn't deserve it? He would say yes. None of you deserved it because you were once enemies of God and yet I poured out myself for you. I gave it all. Jesus, are you able to give away your wealth freely and bless others no matter the cost, no matter what it costs you? You know what he would say? Yes. You know what it cost me? I lost my comfort when I took on your agony. I lost my glory when I took on your shame. I lost my righteousness when I took on 
your sin. I gave it all up on the cross for you. You see that? Jesus is the infinitely generous one who emptied himself, who became poor, so that we might be given something uh, that we don't deserve, so that we might become rich in him, so that we might be born again to a living hope through his resurrection from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. You see, when you believe in the gospel, I think uh, it's a message that ought to make us generous. And there's a good case study of this in 2 Corinthians where this, the verse I just read comes from. The case study is this. You have these churches in Macedonia. The Apostle Paul, he's going around, he's making a collection because there's a famine in Jerusalem. And uh, the believers in Macedonia, they beg. They say, can we contribute? Can we help? Now what's unique about the believers in Macedonia is this, that they themselves were undergoing persecution and therefore they themselves were very poor. They lived in poverty. That's how Paul describes their situation. And yet, even though they were poor and in a poor economic situation, Paul reports this, that they not simply gave according to their means, what they could afford to give, but they gave even beyond their means. And how else do you explain how somebody would be able to give in such a radical way? It has to be the gospel. It has to be. They understood the generosity that Jesus showed towards them, and that filled them with an abundance of joy, that even though they lacked material things, even though they were material po materially poor, they did not feel it. They did not identify themselves as needy people. Rather, they identified themselves as supremely wealthy and rich in Christ because they knew what Christ gave them. And I think, I think that's the only way that we can really cultivate a healthy kind of generosity. Because think about it, what are the alternatives? How else can we be generous people? Well, someone could coerce you to be generous. You could be manipulated into giving. Those are both terrible options. You could even be driven by guilt. Perhaps some of you feel guilty uh, right now. And I would say guilt, even guilt, is not a good option. It's not a good motivator to be a generous person. If you say, oh, look how much I have and look how little other people have, uh, I need to give away more, that's being driven by guilt. That doesn't make you a, a generous person. And uh, in some ways, there's an unintended consequence in that you can take a more paternalistic uh, perspective or have a superiority complex over those who have less than you. Uh, you might think that you are better than others because you give away more of your money. Um, you know, even, even a sense of duty uh, to help the poor or the needy, I think, can come with potential dangers because if you say this, I have a responsibility to give my money to those who are less fortunate, uh, the danger is that you start to think uh, they need me more than I need them. But you know, in, in, the, in the Bible's narrative, uh, it actually says the poor and the needy, even children, those who are typically in a disempowered position, uh, those are the people we actually need more than uh, them in the sense of they teach us something so important about faith. They teach us something important about what it means to live dependently, what it means to depend upon God, and in the way, what the Bible does is it elevates those who are poor and those who are needy and the children and those who are typically disempowered as people that uh, all, all of us and all people need as examples of faith. And so you see, all those I think are bad options. And I think the only good option is this. The way to become generous 
is to do it because there's gratitude in your heart. The way to become generous is not to will it, is not to force yourself, not to be coerced, not to be uh, manipulated, not to do it out of guilt, but it is to say this, Jesus poured out himself, he became poor, and it, it, it's not this like empty thing that happened, he became poor and something happened to me because of that. I became wealthy, I became rich, I became filled. I have this promise, I have this hope of something that is far greater than any kind of uh, material wealth that uh, I am always seeking. And you see, when you feel that way, when you're transformed and changed in that way, I don't think giving away money is actually uh, hard (laughs) because you feel rich already. I think that's the only way to explain how this poor community in uh, Macedonia begged. That's what Paul says. They begged to give out of their poverty. Radical, right? Well, it's because they knew the radical generosity of Jesus Christ. Friends, um, I don't know. New York, cost of living is high, right? I think everybody here struggles with cost of living in New York. It's hard to afford an apartment, space. Food is expensive. Drink is expensive. Subways are getting more expensive. Uh, Not only that, we're rubbing shoulders to shoulders with, like, people who have much more money than us, and we're probably comparing ourselves to those who have a lot, and therefore we, we feel poor all the time because of that. That's a lie. Even if you are materially poor, that's a lie. Because if the gospel is true, you are spiritually rich in Christ. That there is an inheritance that awaits those who have put their faith in Christ. I think that'll make us generous people. I think that'll help us walk the path of generosity rather than the path of greed. Let's pray together.